Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Well, on the occasion last week of the uh, first tranche of declassifications by acting DNI Richard Grinnell that uh, provided some detail on all of the unmasking requests that were made by all of the various Obama administration personnel as it pertains to Michael Flynn and perhaps others, Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley, the two senators from Wisconsin and Iowa, respectively, want more details more documents declassified because they have more concern that uh, perhaps the surveillance that was being conducted by Obama administration officials predates Operation Crossfire Hurricane. On that occasion last week, John Brennan, former CIA director, took to his safe space on MSNBC and had this reaction. Obama officials were going out and saying, give me everything about Michael Flynn. Absolutely not. And quite Interestingly, the number of reports that were in December 16 and January 17 that were declassified by Richard Grinnell, um, I was surprised at how many dates and reports there were there. Maybe what Mr. Grinnell should do is to declassify and then release the contents of those reports in terms of what individuals were involved with. Uh, But what he's doing now is just releasing the names of individuals who, again, were carrying out their authorized responsibilities. Uh, be patient, Director Brennan. Uh, he's getting there yesterday to classifying a uh, email from Susan Rice that seems to run counter to things Susan Rice was saying in public. Uh, from a national security perspective, President Obama said he wants to be sure that as we engage with the incoming team, we're mindful to ascertain if there is any reason we cannot share information fully as it relates to Russia, Rice wrote. Comey said he does have some concerns that incoming NSA Flynn is speaking frequently with Russian Ambassador Kislyak. Comey said that could be an issue as it relates to sharing sensitive information. President Obama asked if Comey was saying the NSC should not pass sensitive information related to Russia to Flynn. Comey replied, potentially, adding that there's no indication thus far that Flynn has passed classified information to Kislyak, but he noted the level of communication is unusual. Potentially, we should not pass sensitive information to the incoming president's incoming national security advisor. Is that uh, properly or or fairly read as somebody trying to insinuate his way into a counterintelligence operation against General Flynn? Well, that's what Susan Rice memorialized in an email. Here's Susan Rice back on March 22nd of 2017, just a couple of months into the Trump administration, in a sit-down on PBS with Judy Woodruff, what she had to say about what she knew. Do you know anything about this? I know nothing about this. I was surprised to see uh, reports from uh, Chairman Yunus on that uh, count today. Fresh off her performance in the Benghazi misdirection, cover-up, however you want to describe it, uh, we get this from Susan Rice. Uh, I really don't know to what... uh, 
Chairman Nunes was referring. But he said that whatever he was referring to was a, a legal, lawful surveillance and that it was potentially incidental collection right. on American citizens. And I think it's important for, under, for people to understand what incidental means. That means that the target was a, either a foreign entity or somebody under criminal investigation and that the Americans who were talking to those targets may have been picked up. Well, Devin Nunez has since revised and extended his remarks, so perhaps Susan Rice would like to do the same. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Fred Flights. He's a former CIA analyst, now president and CEO at Center for Security Policy, former deputy assistant to the president and to the chief of staff of the National Security Council. Fred, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be here. How about uh, what Susan Rice said in 2017 versus what Susan Rice memorialized about uh, this January 5th, 2017 meeting? Well, I mean, she's lying. Clearly, she knew that there was electronic surveillance of General Flynn. What this comes down to was the intention of the Obama administration from the top, from President Obama, not to honor a very important principle of our democracy, and that's called the peaceful transfer of power. Under that principle, the outgoing administration cooperates fully with the incoming one. It honors the, the will of the people, turns over the keys to the offices, tells them about foreign policy initiatives underway gives them all the intelligence operations and intelligence that they've collected. They don't withhold information from the incoming president and tell career officers to use this information to investigate the next administration, to undermine it. It's really very serious violation of our whole system of government. If they had concerns about General Flynn, they had to tell the next administration about it. They could have told President Trump or Vice President Pence. And Comey admitted later that he withheld information from Attorney General Sessions about Russia also. This was an effort by an outgoing administration to undermine and to destroy an incoming administration. Talk to us as a former CIA analyst. Give us a little bit more color on unmasking and the number of requests made and this seeming cover story that Comey had as memorialized in the memo and that Brennan had on the cable TV news shows, basically saying, well, boy, that's a lot of communication that Flynn is having with the Russian ambassador. So since that's unusual, that gives us the predicate for doing some unusual things in reaction. First of all, it's not unusual for an incoming national security advisor to speak to foreign officials so he can hit the ground running when it comes in. Because our foreign intelligence agencies are not supposed to spy on Americans. If an American name is captured accidentally in the collection, it's redacted or masked. Now, if you're a senior official, you can get that name, but you have to have a good reason, and it's only provided to that person. Now, I know there's a lot of experts running around saying that unmasking is very common. Even some Republicans are saying that. I was in the CIA 19 years. I didn't know how to make an unmasking request for the first 13. I'd never heard of one. It's very uncommon. It's true there's eight to 9,000 a year, but we've about 2 million people with top-secret clearances. They read millions and millions of pieces of intelligence a year. It's actually not that common. And it's very sensitive. And the fact that there were 53 requests by 39 individuals between Election Day and January 12th for General Flynn's name is unbelievable that so many officials needed to know this. And I don't understand how NSA personnel could cooperate with requests for members of the Trump campaign and transition. Were there no whistleblowers? Were there no complaints to inspector generals? Well, here's the other thing, too, about Flynn. It's not like he was some sort of rogue out of left field. 
I mean, he was the defense intelligence head during the Obama administration for a brief stint until he fell out of favor because Obama fell out of favor with him. And and so I, I wonder if there was something personal there in addition to obviously the very personal feelings about Trump's victory. Well, they did see him as a rogue. He didn't fit the mold. He pursued analysis that the Obama administration didn't want to see. He strongly opposed the Obama administration on the Iran nuclear deal. He wanted to significantly reorganize the U.S. intelligence community, which I might add seems to be starting now. But this started with General Flynn. I think the intelligence community was determined that he not head the National Security Council. And another thing, he was an experienced Trump guy coming into the government. Trump and his close advisors did not have a lot of national security experience. Flynn did. He's a general. He headed the Defense Intelligence Agency and removing him. And he was hostile to the Obama administration agenda. Removing him was a high priority, I think, for government careerists. I wanted to get your uh, reaction to uh, Chuck Ross had a good piece in Daily Caller, just sort of tracking how both at FBI and within the intelligence agencies, there was this consistent approach of leaking things or getting things placed in the media as the predicate to do what they were already doing or the predicate to get to do what they wanted to do. Say, oh, well, CNN's got it. And before CNN does something with it, we need to go down this path or we need to go down that path, you know, all the way to Comey uh, having a former law professor famously leak information that prompted the appointment of a special prosecutor. And how common or uncommon is uh, the manipulation of the media to the ends of intel or law enforcement? It's too common, and it reminds me of CIA Director Goss, who tried to reform the CIA for George W. Bush, and CIA careerists heavily leaked to the news media to undermine him. Unfortunately, it drove Goss out as CIA Director. Career officers know how to do this in the government. What's different about President Trump is that he fights back, and his staff fights back, and they know how to work the media. And these leaks are harmful, but I remember when Goss was CIA director, he didn't believe in talking to the news media. He didn't think the CIA should be working with press, and I think that was a mistake, and Donald Trump hasn't made that mistake. Although uh, current CIA director Gina Haspel is, is uh, like a ghost. I mean, we never hear from her. I mean, he, Pompeo didn't talk a lot to the press when he was CIA director, but by comparison— he was quite loquacious. I mean, Haspel has uh, really taken a different approach. And I wonder, as we're trying to assess how these agencies are operating now, has there been a culture change? Are there reforms or are they moving in a reform direction such that they're salvageable? We have a differing opinions about Christopher Ray and FBI, which is more high profile. What about CIA? I think there's an argument to be made that intelligence agencies should stay out of the news. Haspel believes that. She doesn't think that she should be having a public profile. I respect her for that. She's been giving good analysis to President Trump. My understanding is he's satisfied with her. Having said that, the CIA has to be reformed. Its bureaucracy has to be looked at and streamlined. This has not been done in a long time. It has not happened under Haskell. Mike Pompeo is not there long enough to do that. If the president's reelected, I think that has to be a priority for the CIA. He is Fred Flights, former CIA analyst, president CEO of Center for Security Policy, former deputy assistant to the president, and to the Chief of Staff of the National Security Council. Brad, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We move uh, from... Fred Flights discussing the CIA and the intelligence community's role in Obamagate, the Russian collusion hoax, if you will, 
to uh, now uh, a little bit more focus on the FBI. Again, uh, the backdrop being the big reveal yesterday, the declassification of a memo email that uh, Susan Rice penned about the January 2017 meeting at the Oval Office. Uh, More details about the discussion on all things General Flynn. And uh, sort of frame that in our conversation with Fred Flight, so we'll pick it up there. But I did want to revisit the Matt Taibbi piece uh, at his uh, uh, personal website, taibbisubstack.com, author, former Rolling Stones reporter. Democrats have abandoned civil liberties. This is a, a gentleman of the left pointing out warrantless surveillance, multiple illegal leaks of classified, inf- classified information, a false statements charge conducted on the razor's edge of Miranda and the use of never-produced secret counterintelligence evidence in a domestic criminal proceeding. This is the rule of law we're being asked to cheer, we being uh, people who despise President Trump. Russiagate cases were often two-level offenses, factually bogus or exaggerated, but also indicative of authoritarian practices. Democrats and Democrat-friendly pundits in the last four years have been consistently unable to register objections on either front. He goes on to say Democrats clearly believe constituents will forgive them for abandoning constitutional principles so long as the targets of official inquiry are figures like Flynn or Manafort or Trump himself. In the process, they've raised a generation of followers whose contempt for civil liberties is now genuine to permanent. Blue staters have gone from dismissing constitutional concerns as Trumpian ruse to sneering at them in the manner of French aristocrats as evidence of proletarian mental defect. Well, that's not a good state of affairs culturally or uh, for those interested in constitutional, the protection of constitutional provisions. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by William Smith. He's a senior research fellow and managing director at the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University and author of Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies, His recent piece, The American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, argues for breaking up the FBI, perhaps because of the very things that Matt Taibbi is pointing up. Bill Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Um, What about uh, Taibbi's uh, distillation of uh, how the FBI, law enforcement, the previous administration generally has behaved and the implications going forward? Well, you know, obviously their activities were quite troubling in recent years, but I I don't think you should limit it to uh, just uh, the recent investigations of the Trump um, Mm -hmm. transition and the Trump administration. I mean, consider what Woodrow Wilson did. He was a progressive and he was arresting people for just opposing the war, World War One. Um, not 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 people who were plotting sedition against the country. People were just writing op-ed pieces saying we shouldn't be in Europe. And of course, we had the Japanese internment. And you know, progressives have not always been great supporters of civil liberties. So you know, there's a historical record on this, and and it's not that shocking if you look at the historical record. And you uh, point up in your piece, uh, I mean, even more recent examples, including the one recently memorialized by Clint Eastwood in an excellent movie, Richard Jewell, but also the corruption association associated with the uh, uh, effort to bring uh, mobster Whitey Bulger to justice, Waco, Ruby Ridge, and of course, 9-11, the, the uh, failures there. Um, the, the, what's the, the, the sort of the summation of the case for disbanding the FBI after 110 years? 
Well, look, uh, you know, I'm coming at this, let me just say, in a preliminary way, as a very pro-law enforcement guy. I worked for Bill Bennett when he was the first uh, drug policy director. Uh, I'm a big supporter of law enforcement, always have been. Um, But I noticed that a lot of the federal law enforcement agencies, say the DEA or ICE or ATF, they have very discrete missions, right? They go after drug criminals, they go after gun runners, they go after immigration criminals. They have missions. They're 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 in a box. Now they can get out of their box and they can get out of their lane and they can get in trouble. This that's true. Um, but generally, they I, it is inconceivable to me. For example, as I wrote in the piece, that the DEA would plot a, a conspiracy against a sitting president of the United States. They just don't think that highly of themselves that they're kind of the saviors of the country. And unfortunately, I think the the FBI has developed that kind of culture where they feel like. We're bigger than everybody else. We can turn our spotlight on anybody we think is doing wrongdoing. And that's kind of troubling, you know, in a constitutional republic to have a national police force as that cultural outlook that we're, we're hovering above everybody else and we're keeping everybody in check. You know, even Democrats, I think, should be somewhat concerned. You have to remember the FBI was investigating both presidential campaigns in 2016. Yeah. Do you want that in a constitutional republic? FBI agents flashing badges at the campaigns of both major candidates? Um, that, that's just troubling to me. Not, not to mention the history of the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover and the surveillance of Martin Luther King, for example. I mean, um, Correct. I, people apparently, apparently have short memories or just maybe more politically expedient, uh, more politically important uh, uh, means that they want expedited in the present. And, and so um, so so you're suggesting and, and you obviously you've provided a lot of historical context to support this. It's not just Jim Comey and his Mr. Smith goes to Washington routine and the senior leadership under him. You've got a, uh, a corporate culture problem in the FBI that's not going to be remedied by removing or changing out the head or even the senior leadership. That, that's my view. And, and I think the Congress ought to take a look at creating four or five agencies and breaking up the FBI, have an agency that's just focused on counterespionage. We do have Chinese spies in the United States, and we should be going after them aggressively. So let's have one agency that does that, maybe one agency that does counterterrorism. You know, I, I, it just concerns me that we have this agency with such a broad mandate that one of the things they've gravitated into is getting into politics. Um, at a pretty high level. And I, I just I'm not a, I'm not comfortable with that. Right. And and this was uh, the pronouncement from Attorney General Barr uh, on Monday this week of saying, look, this is, you know, the idea of he didn't say it, but in, in these words, but I, the words I'll use the idea that the Department of Justice and by extension, the FBI are agencies to exercise political vigilantism. Uh, right. it, that that's over. And I'm not trying to even any score here from what the previous administration or the previous leadership of the FBI or the Department of Justice did. I, we're, we're done with that because there are more important things like uh, the foundations of our representative republic to be concerned about. And so so you understand my approach is we're going to go where the facts lead and work under what the law allows. And that's it. Yes. Yes, and, and, you know, I think you had a window into the grandiose FBI culture in the recent revelation where James Comey is telling Susan Rice, I don't think we should share information with the incoming administration about Russia. Right. I mean, you know, he's not elected. <laughs> the president was just elected, and Michael Flynn was the president's chosen national security advisor. Who is James Comey to say we shouldn't be sharing intelligence with the, the, the person that the people just elected? 
again, I think their culture just is way out of whack um, constitutionally. He is William Smith, Senior Research Fellow and Managing Director at the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America, author of Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies. William Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Just some of the consequences of the lockdowns. And this is impacts felt over eight weeks. We talked to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya yesterday from Stanford Medical Center about uh, the reality he understood from the beginning there was no such thing as a safe approach to dealing with this COVID-19 virus. So some of the consequences that perhaps weren't considered by the actual policymakers, the public office holders. And this is called together from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Scott Atlas, Jeffrey Tucker at the American Institute for Economic Research, various news articles, a study that you'll hear from a trust, the foundation that looked at uh, deaths of despair, for example. Uh, well-being trust. Uh, so just quickly, 250 plus hospitals have furloughed workers. And remember, a flatten the curve was about protecting the vitality and strength of our healthcare infrastructure. One fourth of rural hospitals in the nation are at risk of closing. Nearly two dozen have closed in the last two months. One fourth of nearly 2000 rural hospitals. 36 million first time unemployment filers in the last eight weeks. We know this. 40 percent of the job loss in the U.S. is among those earning less than 40 K a year. Of the 650,000 U.S. cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, an estimated half are missing their treatments. Transplants from living donors, down 85%. Emergency stroke evaluations, down 40%. Pediatric vaccinations for measles, down 60%. Uh, A projection of 75,000 additional deaths of despair above the norm, suicide, substance abuse. The U.N. World Food Program predicts by year's end, the number of people in the world facing acute hunger could double to 265 million Combine this with the reversal of progress on child mortality, and we could be looking at the loss of more than 20 million young people over the next decade for all of those self-styled global citizens out there. This says nothing of, about the government takings of private property or the infringements on individual liberties. So, so tell me again how the ready lockdown aim approach was not only the best option, it was the only responsible option. You want to run that uh, every trade-off in furtherance of saving just one life from COVID-19 is worth it formulation by me again. And then politicians still committed to lockdown and bus policies like my home state governor Pritzker and Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the city in which I reside called Chicago, suggest a leisurely relaxed gate back from the abyss and onto the road to recovery. Is that what's warranted based on what we now understand to be true, even though there's so much we don't know eight, 10 weeks into this? For more on uh, that very topic, please to be joined by James Capretta. He's a resident fellow who holds the Milton Friedman chair at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Jim Capretta, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. What about um, the balance? I know we can't undo what's been done over the last eight to 10 weeks, but What about going forward? Are there lessons that uh, we should have learned with respect to striking a balance between the in in a lives versus lives conversation 
as opposed to the false lives versus money conversation some have suggested we were having? My perspective on this is that I think it was inevitable that if you didn't contain it, community spread, you're going to end up in some kind of a lockdown situation, which is what's happened in every Western nation. So only the countries that were able to contain it from widespread community transmission were able to avoid kind of the worst aspects of the economic damage from, you know, a major turning off of the economy. There's sort of two, two things going on. One is that there needs to be some period of time. If it's spreading wildly in a community, the community itself is going to say to the authorities, well, gee, you know, how dangerous is this for various parties? And the truth is the scientific community really didn't know at the beginning. And then the second aspect is by moving to a period, you know, sort of the better approach of just sort of trying to move slowly towards herd immunity by letting transmission to occur and not turning things off so much, but having, you know, more economic activity occurring as it was without locking down. If we had moved in that direction, we might have had more deaths than we will end up having because there could be some medical breakthroughs over the coming months. In other words, the treatment options for patients in October, November, and December, if you get a second surge, one hopes, and I hope, will be better than the treatment options that we had available in February, March, and April. And so that, you know, there's some value in waiting because we can get our medical act together, so to speak, and deploy some more remedies that might be helpful to the patients who actually end up with it. So anyway, those are my, yeah. my initial thoughts. Look, I, I don't dismiss at all that the lockdown has been very, very damaging to the economy and everything else. We can't go on forever. On the other hand, I think the public probably, at the end of the day, would, would prefer to have this period of pain if it leads to improvements in the second half of the year that allow us to really handle, handle the situation better going forward. When we come back with the American Enterprise Institute's James Capretta, I want to talk about the prospect of a second wave and avoiding another mass lockdown just as we're beginning the reopening. More with James Capretta right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with the American Enterprise Institute's James Capretta, and I want to go back to the point you were making about lockdowns and their effectiveness. Going forward, then, uh, how do we get out of the trap of being in the same, having the same response now that people have been whipped into a state of frenzy, at least a good portion of them, varies a bit, uh, that you have a second wave, and depending on how severe it is, that we go right back into shelter in place just as we're emerging from it. Well, I think the real key there is, is each state and each community having a testing regime where there's an early detection and surveillance system so that if you have widespread testing availability and then some ability for population monitoring, that is more randomized testing of the population, you can detect pretty quickly early on if things are starting to spread and then use an aggressive contact tracing system. If the numbers are low enough uh, to use contact tracing to identify people who might possibly be infected get them tested and removed from circulation. 
Um, that's the way to really contain, you know, a virus that's highly transmissible early on. And that's what South Korea did. And, you know, every country is going to have to have a modified version of the same program. And we have the capacity to do it here, too. We can do it. It's not, it's not you know, rocket science, as they say, but it does take work and effort and some public commitment. And so, you know, that's what's going to have to happen. And, 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 and how about how about how how do we communicate that? Because it seems to me, you know, the communication, particularly from credentialed people, carries a lot of weight, perhaps too much weight. Uh, and there's um, not the media coverage is very selective on which credential people we're supposed to listen to versus which people versus other people that have the same credentials, but a difference of opinion. And we're not supposed to listen to them. And when you have those that are given profile, like uh, Dr. Fauci from the beginning, saying there's no such thing as an overreaction and former CDC director Peter Frieden saying there's no such thing as being alarmist. And Melinda Gates saying COVID-19 anywhere is COVID-19 everywhere, as if New York City and Cheyenne, Wyoming are similarly situated. It seems to me those sort of fortune cookie communications from those with credentials and or resources uh, are terribly unhelpful because in part they're untrue. Yeah. I mean, look, I think um, how one communicates to the public about how to handle the situation going forward, um, you know, who to trust and who to, who to invest with that kind of communication authority. I think we're in a particularly difficult situation. What I, what I would have hoped for, which I don't think we're going to get, honestly, is some kind of direction from the federal government that sort of says, here's the game plan for the next six months. You know, we may modify it going forward, but here's the overall game plan. I've got, you know, uh, this, this group of people, three people that are going to communicate with you on how to do testing and contact tracing and reopening schools, businesses, other other public facilities. Here's how to go about it. Um, a little bit more direction from the federal government to sort of put the whole country on the same path that can be then executed. I think that was sort of that. That's sort of what we're missing at this point. Mm. And so instead, we have a cacophony of responses and a lot of, you know, um, uh, you know, misleading things being said from you know any number of different directions. And people get confused in that process. So I'm still, you know, maybe there's still some hope in the next month or so there will be a little bit more federal leadership that points the direction for the overall country and allows everybody to say, okay, we got a game plan for everybody at this point, and let's move forward. Uh, with respect to the schools, uh, since you raised that, what's your view on the prospect of K through 12 school systems reopening in the fall, college campuses reopening in the fall. This is another area where it seems to be uh, state by state and community by community, which is fine. But in, just in terms of people that are studying this issue and what is sensible, what's your perspective? Well, on, on the university situation, um, I think that because they are, you know, to some degree contained campuses, contained locations for the college towns, um, I think their ability to keep the students there, circulate amongst themselves, so to speak, and be kind of a contained environment around which they try to limit, you know, spread and contain outbreaks, allows them maybe to move forward and, and plan for an opening. I think what the, the university is doing about trying to think through how to do it, 
not have fall breaks, keep them all there, maybe end early, uh, a little bit biased to have, you know, um, uh, family, you know. Uh, so I, I think uh, I think that uh, that could be a very helpful um, uh, development on the university front. Do K, for K through 12, I do think that there's still a question of uh, the severity of the illness when it hits children and a little bit more scientific inquiry, hopefully fast in the next month, can figure out exactly what the risk is and provide more guidance to the school systems about what the risk is and so on. It's, it's a, obviously a very important part of the American economy. When schools are closed, you know, everything kind of shuts down to some degree. And so it's important uh, for all kinds of reasons to open the schools if they can be open. But I think a little bit more inquiry around the health aspects of it is probably prudent, too. He is James Capretta, a resident fellow who holds the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. James Capretta, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Take care. Speaking of getting an education, investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney has a practicum for you. Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental, and you can observe them all by watching Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, in the comfort of your own home, along with the other movies in the Patterns of Evidence series at PatternsofEvidence.com. There's three of them. Exodus, the Moses Controversy, and the Red Sea Miracle. Uh, this is uh, a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus and the other uh, stories in the series are, in fact, true. The Exodus, uh, after that installment, you can uh, also enjoy a panel discussion on the topic moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, and Ann Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and the others in that series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We were talking with the American Enterprise Institute's Jim Capretta about uh, reopening schools from uh, pre-K through post-secondary. So uh, to the point of uh, college campuses, and uh, we've discussed... Uh, some thoughtful approaches to reopening campuses, such as the one advanced by former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, now president of Purdue University. Uh, but what about uh, the cost structure presented, particularly as uh, you have so many universities trying to line up for federal largesse, like states and localities? In uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, recently passed uh, quote-unquote Heroes Act, you've got the student debt forgiveness, you know, sort of a step on the path to the free college that uh, Bernie Sanders and, frankly, all the Democrat socialists essentially subscribe to within um, some variance. Debt forgiveness of up to $10,000 is what was in the HEROES Act. Not that that's going to see the light of day, but it gives you an indication of perspective. Well, Mike Rowe has perspective, too. Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs, a narrator of one of my favorite shows, Deadliest Catch. And uh, he was on with Dave Rubin recently speaking about uh, college and how the economics have to change 
because people just aren't going to be willing to uh, pay a premium for what they can, so much of what they can get free online, even with the government subsidizing it. Two weeks ago, I watched on YouTube a lecture from MIT for free, the same lecture that would have cost X thousands of dollars, right? So I think when the dust settles, higher education is going to be revealed for the uh, luxury brand that it truly is. And when you take away all of the stuff that has nothing to do with learning or connecting, you're going to be left with a breathtakingly overpriced product. No question about it. Uh, I, that, that, you know, it's one of those things where a trend was occurring. And now with the uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic, that trend has just increased in pace exponentially to borrow a favorite word of the pandemic era. And so uh, you're going to see perhaps more people taking classes at community colleges, at least to get their gen ed requirements out of the way before going to a four year university, because, you know, the course credits are just cheaper. And uh, an econ 101 class at community college isn't different than an econ 101 class in a lecture hall of a thousand people at a big 10 university. So I think you're going to see that. And also what uh, Mike Rose said more generally about online resources, it doesn't mean the campus is over, but it means it's going to be different, perhaps more bifurcated, uh, some online and some in person. And because you still want that social interaction on campus, you want that networking aspect of a college campus. And people will continue to still pay a premium for that, as well as for the luxury brand name, which confers something of importance to various business sectors. That's not going to change overnight, but you are going to see those trend lines that uh, Mike Rowe is referencing and that I've described uh, certainly increase in the sense of transforming what the college experience will be for for many, many of the relatively few that go on to post-secondary education. And that's a whole nother kettle of fish. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. In an interview with The Telegraph, the World Health Organization's top European official, Dr. Hans Klug, said that uh, a second wave of COVID-19 will hit Europe this winter, and it will be more deadly in part because of the projection that it will coincide with outbreaks of other infectious diseases like the seasonal flu. Is that established? It doesn't seem to be. That seems to be a, another bit of conjecture on the behalf of that World Health Organization official, as we're still in an area of uncertainty about a second wave, even though, yes, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Gottlieb suggests that it's more likely than not, but we don't know the nature of it or the lethality of it. This seems to me another example of a problem that has been consistent throughout and, and certainly with the models. Let's predict the worst case scenario and model policy based on that rather than the most likely scenario. 
you know, plan for the worst case scenario, but in terms of our policy response, we're going to use as a baseline the most likely scenario and then have the backstop of the worst case scenario. Uh, maybe if we had taken that approach, sort of the measure twice and cut one approach, we wouldn't have done the ready lockdown aim nationally and frankly internationally the consequences of which we're just starting to get some indication of. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Alex Berezow. He is Vice President of Scientific Communications at the American Council on Science and Health, a Ph.D. microbiologist and a columnist for USA Today. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Greetings from Poland, where they have still the borders are closed and I can't get on an airplane. (laughs) So I'll be here for a while. Talk to us. I mean, I, I know we have so much to deal with in real time, but part of the lesson to be learned from this is planning ahead and deciding exactly how implementation will proceed. So thinking about the second wave and these health officials that are weighing in on the topic of a second wave this fall and winter, this is important because you have a lot of people like me who are concerned that if we're not thinking about this and talking about it now, we could have a yo-yoing where we open up only to turn around and lock down and we're forever in, uh, in this back and forth. So so your assessment of some of these pronouncements that you're hearing? Well, th- there's a very good, very smart infectious disease epidemiologist named Michael Osterholm, and he's at the University of Minnesota, and he's actually an advisor to my organization, the American Council on Science and Health. And he has put out a report with, with some other very respected epidemiologists that concludes that a second wave is incredibly likely. And the reason that they came to that conclusion is because they looked at previous influenza pandemics. Now, influenza and coronavirus are different viruses. They're not exactly identical, but some of their dynamics in human populations do seem to be rather similar. Both viruses have spread around the globe really rapidly. There are no immune people, right? Because no one's ever seen this virus before. So everyone is completely susceptible. So they looked at eight previous influenza pandemics going back to the 1700s. And they found that in seven of eight cases, there were substantial, very large second waves. And so it's very reasonable to predict that there will be a second wave probably this fall, maybe early early winter, late autumn, and we should prepare for that. But do we understand or have does Osterholm have any insight into what he thinks is the most likely scenario in terms of the severity of the second wave? Is it going to be more or less, or do we have any sense of that? No, no. Yeah, they proposed three scenarios. One of them was a gigantic large second wave, but they also predicted the possibility of just a bunch of subsequent smaller waves. So it is wait and see, but the idea that it's going to come back is the consensus is yes, it will be back. Is it um, your view that whether we want to admit it or not, we're essentially now pursuing the Swedish model of herd immunity or we will be in short order? I don't think there's any way around it. Uh, I I wrote an article about the inevitability that everyone's going to get infected. And this isn't just my opinion. This is the opinion of a Swedish epidemiologist who said that this lockdown is clearly not going to work. Because if the lockdown, if the whole purpose of the lockdown is to prevent the virus from spreading, it's futile. This thing is going to spread. And so his concern was that we're, we're doing this massive damage to the economy you know, lockdown is going to have all sorts of unintended consequences in terms of public health and, and economics. And ultimately, the goal of stopping the virus is not going to work. 
and the people who are most vulnerable, they're going to get infected anyway. Their infection is going to be delayed. It's not going to happen this year. It might happen next year. And so he thinks, and I agree, that the strategy should switch to making sure that the people who are most vulnerable are protected and making sure they get sufficient care, but then everybody else kind of needs to keep calm and carry on. There are some that are arguing that right now the way to deal with eradicating the virus and and inspiring confidence in people to reopen and resume their lives, their regularly scheduled lives, or at least many aspects of their regularly scheduled lives. We need to ramp up to 5 million tests a day, and we have the capacity to do it. This is Alex Tabarak and others at George Mason University arguing this. We need to do robust contact tracing. We need to quarantine those who are sick and convert uh, hotels into places where we quarantine the sick. And we need to uh, also do sort of uh, the funding to support the warp speed of vaccine development and and, and essentially underwrite right now the manufacturing capacity for investing in the 15 to 20 potential vaccines that show the most promise so that we're ready to go if whenever, whenever any one of them may click and prove ready for wide distribution. Well, I, I think that one of the benefits of, of working in academia is that you can propose policies that aren't based in reality. Um, you know, I'd like to have a golden toilet seat on my fusion-powered spaceship to Mars, mm-hmm. um, but uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so uh, the idea that we're going to be running 5 million tests a day, um, okay, I, I don't – that does not sound even remotely reasonable or realistic to me. Uh, there's There's been a report now, I think it was in the Washington Post, that's, that Utah has so many tests available and people are not showing up to just voluntarily do the testing, they actually put up billboards asking people, hey, you know, we've got tests, come and get tested for coronavirus, and people aren't doing it. And so now there's a surplus of tests and people aren't, people aren't volunteering to get tested. I think there's a certain amount of fatigue. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a certain amount of fatigue that's set in, right? Like we, we've been lectured now every day since February, and people are getting tired of this. We want to move on with our lives. And, uh, you know, like I said, academics have the luxury of proposing policies that that simply aren't based in reality. Since one of the things we do know, 80 percent of uh, all COVID-19 related deaths in Canada, nursing homes in the states, it's uh, pluralities to super majorities, uh, depending on the state of the COVID-19 deaths uh, are nursing home residents. Uh, what can we do prospectively thinking about a second wave and thinking about uh a more textured or nuanced policy that would protect the truly vulnerable like those in nursing homes, uh, but allow for the younger and the healthier to continue the resumption of their lives? Well, if I was if I was uh, running things, if I was, I guess, the dictator, this is, would be my policy. My policy would be if you're healthy, keep calm and carry on, go, like, go on with life. If you are elderly or immunocompromised, uh, you know, we will encourage you to consider staying home and practicing social distancing. Uh, facilities like nursing homes, they need to be on something resembling a lockdown uh, because, you know, a virus gets in there, it wipes out the entire population of people there. So that's what I would look at. Um, but this, this idea of, of canceling sporting events and telling everybody to stay home and no restaurants, like th- this is ridiculous. And so um, that's how I would, I would handle it. I think that's a more reasonable approach. Protect the vulnerable and everybody else carries on. 
just with respect to that, what what about uh, any sort of rethinking of nursing homes generally? I, I assume that there's going to be some of that done on an individual basis. I'll take a home health care worker rather than a nursing home just because of exactly what you said. But is there any policy change that should be made re- with respect to the uh, operation of nursing homes, do you think? I'm not terribly familiar with nursing home policy. I know that there are different kinds of nursing homes. You know, there are some that are rehabilitation centers, and there are some that are more like convalescent homes that are, you know, some people, some are more like hospices. So I, I don't really know exactly, uh, but but I, the, obviously the policy of putting sick people in nursing homes, like what New York did, bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So, uh, so might want to rethink that one. Yeah, right. So that, 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 that's about the extent that I can say on that one. I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with nursing home policy. He is Alex Berezow. He is vice president of scientific communications at the American Council on Science and Health, a Ph.D. microbiologist and columnist for USA Today. Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining us as always, and uh, stay safe in Poland. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show a world without heroes ronan farrow getting raked over the coals in the new york times by uh, Ben Smith, who's uh, still on what seems to be sort of a make-good gambit. Ben Smith, formerly of, of BuzzFeed, where he published the uncorroborated Steele dossier uh, out of uh, Trump antipathy, the baseless Steele dossier that was the, the source or the, the uh, lever for so much fraud perpetrated on the American public. Now Ben Smith is uh, you know, a guardian uh, and quality control assurance official for the Fourth Estate, it seems. He uh, did that interview a few weeks back that we discussed in detail with uh, New York Times executive editor Dean Baquet about the disparate approach to covering Tara Reid's sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden as compared to the allegations of sexual assault by Blase Ford and Julie Swetnick against Brett Kavanaugh during the confirmation hearings for now Justice Kavanaugh. And uh, the hilarious answer, I mean, unintentionally hilarious answers Baquet gave, but the gross hypocrisy and political disposition that Baquet exposed in the answers he provided Ben Smith. Now Ben Smith going after Ronan Farrow, Mr. Me Too, with some basis, but uh, perhaps uh, certainly not above scrutiny and review. Our friend over at... uh, who writes the best of the web column for the Wall Street Journal, wonders if this is the end of, quote-unquote, resistance journalism when somebody's actually, you know, fact-checking the heroes of the Fourth Estate, like Ronan Farrell. I don't know about that. Uh, he writes of Farrell, does Ben Smith. That Farrell delivers narratives that are irresistibly cinematic with unmistakable heroes and villains and often omits the complicating facts and inconvenient details that may make them less dramatic. At times, he does not always follow typical journalistic imperatives of corroboration and rigorous disclosure, or he suggests conspiracies that are tantalizing, but he cannot prove. (laughs) Well, uh, the imperatives of corroboration and rigorous disclosure, boy, where have they been in newsrooms around the country, much less the cable TV, quote unquote, newsrooms? Uh, Farrow has done some good reporting and uh, there's no question about it, but it doesn't mean, again, he's above reproach saying that Mr. Ben Smith does a Farrell. 
that his work, quote, reveals the weakness of a kind of resistant journalism that has thrived in the age of Donald Trump, that if reporters swim ably along with the ties of social media and produce damaging reporting about public figures most disliked by the loudest voices, the old rules of fairness and open mindedness can seem more like impediments than essential journalistic imperatives. Well, I mean, you know, I guess Ben Smith has cured himself because that's exactly how he behaved at BuzzFeed, as I mentioned. But okay, you know, I guess give people room to mature and grow and uh, reestablish some standards that uh, we would uh, reasonably expect people to abide when lives are in the balance and in in terms of lives in terms of reputations. Uh, And all this against the backdrop of Matt Lauer returning to offer commentary. So Ben Smith challenges Ronan Farrow, who uh, teed up Matt Lauer as uh, one of the bad actors in the Me Too era, and he certainly was. But it doesn't mean that everything Ronan Farrow wrote about Farrow, uh, everything that Ronan Farrow wrote about Lauer uh, is corroborated. Uh, and thus, uh, you know, whether or not it's true and point of fact, Lauer writing this uh, extensive op ed at Mediate, uh, why Ronan Farrell is indeed too good to be true. Is Ronan Farrell too good to be true? Ben Smith's question. Matt Lauer's answer. He is indeed too good to be true. Uh, he uh, does. Lauer begins by, uh, you know, complaining com- comically, complaining about the state of journalism uh-huh. uh, and how. Uh, he was mistreated. First of all, the fact that he characterizes himself as a journalist is humorous enough. The idea that he's aghast that uh, journalists uh, uh, convicted him in a court of public opinion and he wasn't afforded the presumption of innocence is uh, truly comical, given uh, the milieu in which he operated, the man of the you know sentimental barbaric left that he was during his time at the top. Now, all of a sudden, as he's felled by the very practices that he applied or certainly tolerated, facilitated, uh, he's not so happy about them. Oh, okay. Well, again, somebody mugged by reality. And he spe- speaks specifically about this allegation that he had raped uh, a woman at NBC, calling it the accusation, calling the accusation one of the worst and most consequential things to ever happen in my life, devastating to my family. And out and uh, it was outrageously uh, used to sell books. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about uh, Pharaoh having a grudge against NBC. He had a show on MSNBC canceled. He openly claimed the network spiked his reporting on the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Well, it did, actually. Um, that's a problem for NBC. So Matt might want to not protect the shield where it doesn't deserve protection. But, yeah, OK, so. Uh, he um, he writes about the four ways Ronan betrayed the truth in the writing of his very popular book, Catch and Kill, bestseller, consistently failed to confirm stories told to him by his main sources, failed to provide evidence of important communications he alleges took place between accusers and me. Uh, he used misleading language to manipulate readers into believing things that could easily be false or at least were unprovable. And fourth, he routinely pressed, presented stories in a way that would suit his activist goals as opposed to any kind of journalistic standards. Ben Smith writing about Pharaoh. At times, he does not always follow the journalistic imperatives of corroboration and rigorous disclosure, as I mentioned before. Uh, OK, so perhaps there's a legitimate criticism there. And by the way, Lauer does provide some concrete examples 
of uh, commentary in Pharaoh's book and assertions in Pharaoh's book that uh, are without corroboration and that he actually contacted the relevant parties. And at least according to him, the relevant parties suggest what Pharaoh said is untrue. So, you know, fair, uh, Lauer may have a few points here to score. And, and look, even though he's not a sympathetic figure, it doesn't mean that somebody else should be allowed to uh, speak untruths, particularly if he is going to be uh, received as the the paragon of virtue when it comes to all things hashtag me too related, you know, the arbiter of who is and who is not uh, a villain. Uh, and if you sensationalize a story, then maybe you don't have much of an underlying story, although those are legitimate questions. And some of the techniques that Lauer alleges Pharaoh uses, there's some evidence suge- suggests that he does use them. And of course, did Matt Lauer use them uh, as the Today Show talking head? Sure he did. Uh, and uh, has he been hoist by his own patar in a sense? And thus, uh, uh, no crocodile, t- only crocodile tears for Matt Lauer? Okay, fine. But in terms of um, the uh, rehabilitation, Ben Smith's rehabilitation project of Ben Smith, and some context to Ronan Farrow, and perhaps even some context to Matt Lauer. You can be a lech, and you can be a bad person, and you may have uh, committed some transgressions, even crimes, but it doesn't mean that everything that you're accused of doing, you're necessarily guilty of. Those things have to be proven up, particularly when you make an allegation like rape. I think that's right. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the point of having standards is to apply them in the difficult cases, not the easy ones. The point of, uh, of, of providing uh, things like presumptions of innocence and demands for evidence and corroboration is when they are with respect to allegations against people you don't like, not people you do. And such is the case here with all parties involved. This is Dan Proctor. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I love this uh, remark by Governor Pritzker yesterday. It's so telling of the left's view of uh, constitutions, whether at the state level or our federal one. They're co-equal branches, they often like to say, and um, certainly have the you know, right to do whatever they'd like uh, in this regard. But I'll just say that um, I haven't asked for any specific review. He was uh, responding to a question about whether he's asked the Illinois General Assembly to review his uh, uh, philosophy that the 30-day emergency powers conferred to him by statute can just be used uh, in perpetuity 30 days at a time, which is clearly violative of the statute, uh, the spirit of the statute. And that's not just me saying it. It's also the opinions bureau head of the state attorney general's office. But his characterization of the General Assembly, the legislative branch, they're a co-equal branch, as they like to say. Well, are are they a co-equal branch or is it just something they like to say? What's your view on it? I I just love uh, the sort of dismissive. They're a co-equal branch, as they like to say. We have an electoral college at the federal level, as we like to say, uh, that uh, is enshrined in the Constitution. 
uh, and is uh, much discussed, um, although it hasn't gotten the attention that perhaps this issue deserves. But, you know, there's still this national popular vote movement to enact laws at the state level that would provide for states to convert their electors to the candidate who wins the national popular vote rather than the candidate who wins their state. This is an effort to end run the Electoral College to effectively eliminate it through the back door because Trump won in 2016 without a majority of the popular vote. I don't recall the same movement springing up when Bill Clinton won both in 92 and 96 without securing a majority of the popular vote. But, of course, um, t- interest change. Well, well, different interests, really, not different times. They're just different interests. And so the positions change for a more on this. And, and so but, but by the way, so the national popular vote laws, this clearly benefits Democrats because you would have the ability to run up the score in places like California and New York and Illinois and um, uh, and then enlist states that are close may lean uh, blue, but enlist them to, uh, or may lean red, but enlist them. You know, Trump narrowly wins Wisconsin. Well, you can have Wisconsin convert their electoral votes. Well, by law, they would have to to the popular vote winner nationally, which would say be Hillary Clinton uh, in the case of 2016. Um, So there's one aspect to one thing going on here. And then the other thing, and this is included in Nancy Pelosi's quote unquote heroes legislation, which is the uh, funding for state level mail by vote programs so that in November 3rd, 2020, could effectively be a national mail by vote election and uh, distinguishing do either or both pose a particular threat to our representative republic. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Trent England, the founder and executive director of Save Our States, the executive vice president of the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs and the author of the recently released Why We Must Defend the Electoral College. Trent, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here, Dan. So um, why don't we start with the national popular vote laws and the matter of faithless electors, because that's actually uh, uh, there's a case before the Supreme Court on that topic as well. So the court is expected to weigh in on this before their term ends in June. Yes. So the court is going to weigh in, as you say, on the issue of faithless electors, which is which is sort of an interesting constitutional question, but also kind of a tempest in a teapot because Faithless electors, as in 2016, the, the two states where this uh, where this case these cases come from, faithless electors are almost always on the losing side. They're they're losers who were trying to make a statement. Uh, you know, these were Hillary Clinton electors in Washington State and Colorado. They wanted to make a political statement. They claimed that they were trying to convince other electors to vote against Donald Trump, but that didn't didn't work and didn't really have a chance to work. Uh, so so the, the court is going to decide whether states can have these laws that either punish or, in Colorado's case, remove and replace presidential electors who don't vote the way they're, they're expected to vote. It's a close question. I think the court is going to um, maybe surprise people. in the. It's not going to be one of these five to four conservative versus liberal lineups. It's probably going to be a little bit more uh, uh, you know, broken up than that or unexpected than that. But uh, – but at the end of the day, it, it really won't affect the Electoral College going forward. And we know that because a lot of states 
have never had these kind of laws, and electors vote the way they're expected to anyway almost every single time. I mean, like 99.9% of the time. When we come back with Trent England, I want to talk about uh, the backdoor effort to uh, dissolve the Electoral College, as well as the question about a national mail-in election on November 3rd. More with Trent England when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Trent England, and I want to go back to the national popular vote laws and the state of play with respect to that movement uh, as it is a state-by-state movement. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the big threat to the Electoral College and really to the integrity of our elections, because if we hijack the Electoral College with this national popular vote interstate compact, if if enough states pass this that they control an Electoral College majority, which is what would put the national popular vote compact into effect, then it, it would shift our elections, as you said, in a way where big cities would have this tremendous power. And for the Democrats right now, you know, just pumping votes out of those big cities would be such an attractive campaign strategy that they would be incentivized to ignore the rest of the country, uh, which is basically what they, you know, after 2016, they basically said, look, we don't want to have to talk to people in Wisconsin. We want to be able to spend more time in California and get our votes there. And, you know, that's what Hillary Clinton tried to do. And uh, with the Electoral College, that doesn't work. You've got to go out and talk to people in middle America and win over new states where, you know, people aren't already uh, diehard supporters of yours. That in itself is not a healthy thing for our country, right? And Republicans could do the same thing, basically go to areas where Republicans are already popular and just try to drive their vote up, right? Radicalizing the electorate rather than having the Electoral College, which sort of, you know, forces us to at least come together a little bit. I mean, at least we're driving our campaigns toward more moderate areas rather than trying to radicalize, you know, the the places where we're most popular. But it also would help uh, set the table for these efforts that you mentioned to federalize our elections. And that that's something that Elizabeth Warren talked about on the campaign trail last year, that she wanted to abolish the Electoral College in part because it would allow us to, to, to nationalize elections. And she wants to do that for the same reason Nancy Pelosi wants to do that. They want to uh, make it illegal for states to have voter ID requirements. They want to force vote by mail, force universal voter registration on every state in the country, which, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of us think that, that many of those practices are big steps backward, undoing the progress that we've made toward a private secret ballot and relatively secure elections. And it's not like uh, they haven't uh, made a uh a substantial effort to get these laws enacted. I I know they're trying to get to the magic number of 270, the number of electors you need to be president of the United States uh, at the state level, state by state. And and I think, according to your piece, 196 electors is where they're at. States were 15 states representing 196 electors. Of course, they need the 270 to get all the states to uh, buy in to know that they'd have control. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's not an insubstantial threat that's afoot. No, that, that's absolutely right. They are almost 75% of the way there. Uh, and and this is a campaign with tens of millions of dollars behind it, even though most people have never heard of it. I mean, it's a, it's a very below-the-radar 
uh, campaign focused in state capitals. They take state legislators on the swankiest junkets imaginable and try to uh, you know try to get their bill passed with minimum debate. And uh, thankfully, they, they shoved this through in Colorado last year, but Colorado voters were so incensed by this that they signed enough petitions to force it to the ballot. So Coloradans are going to vote on this at the polls this year in November and hopefully will reject the National Popular Vote Compact. And that would uh, that would deprive them of nine electoral votes. So that would be a, a good step in the right direction. And uh, we've, we've also seen, you know, even in states like Virginia, which the Democrats took over last year, uh, National Popular Vote pushed their plan really hard there earlier this year. And, uh, and, and even some of the Democrats who come from more rural or small town areas uh, were resistant enough to it that uh, the National Popular Vote failed in Virginia this year. So it's, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I created this, this Save Our States effort uh, 11 years ago to fight back against this. Um, it's, it's been a lot harder after 2016 because the Democrats have made this a, a big issue. But, uh, but, it, but it's a fight. We're, we're giving them a fight. And I think that, uh, I, I think that if, if Coloradans in particular vote against this, uh, the first time it's ever actually gone to a popular vote, ironically, uh, I, I think that will really help to, to show the political class that you know, ordinary people still appreciate a state-based system and still, you know, there's still a lot of Americans who care about the Constitution. 538 blog had a write-up on this, finding that uh, since states have expanded their use of mail, mail-in ballots over the last decade, including five states that conduct all mail-in elections by default, both parties have enjoyed a small but actual equal increase in turnout. And even in Florida, you find that with respect to uh, mail-in ballots, uh, there there had been initially more demo- applications by Dem voters, but it turns out Republicans do a better job of completing their ballots than Florida Democrats. So the uh, the distribution is not substantial in terms of affecting elections. But but that's that's only one that's only one of the issues. The other issue, the real issue that you're pointing out, and and Hans von Spakovsky over at Heritage points out, is the um, vulnerability to fraud, to, to dubious ballot harvesting programs, or like in, in uh, Orange County last year in California, or worse. And, and that's really the issue. So it's not just about like, sort of like Democrat Republican advantage or who turn you know who sees the bigger turnout state by state and what's it like in swing states versus red or blue states. It's the idea that you could have one person. Uh, or one group of people impact the outcome in a particular state that could impact the outcome in, say, a presidential race. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, there, there are so many ways to manipulate an election when it's vote by mail that just aren't, uh, they just don't exist in in an election when people go to the polls. And uh, uh, and, and you see it especially in some of these in, in like city elections, you know, elections where there's a smaller number of ballots. And, uh, you know, people may have more knowledge or, or more ability to, to, you know, to sort of make sure whose ballots come in or to throw out ballots. You know, in, in a city election, this has happened before, uh, people who have access to where the ballots are processed, they, they can go before the, before the ballots are processed. Well, you've got these envelopes sitting here that actually have people's names on them, and they can go and just – throw away the ballots for people who they know are on the other side. And, you know, in a close election, you, you, you know, you, you toss out a few dozen ballots and that can be the margin. And, and it actually, I mean, it actually has in, in some 
in some yeah. elections and some documented cases. It's we're uh, you know, and, and, we're, and then you start to we're we're familiar with that. Start to think about yeah. you know, that nationwide. We're familiar with that concept in the city that delivered uh, the presidency to JFK, uh, uh, among other uh, <laughs> skullduggerous events and. In election history in Chicago and Cook County. He is Trent England, founder and executive director of Save Our States, executive VP of the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, and author of the recently released Why We Must Defend the Electoral College. Trent, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Gavin Newsom on CNBC yesterday making the case for why California should receive one trillion dollars in funding from the federal government. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's Heroes Act is another three trillion and California wants a third of that. I'm sure Gavin Newsom would take some of that in the form of Fed facility funding, borrowing effectively. Listen to Newsom's rationale. The purpose of federal government is to keep people safe and also focus on the well-being of our citizens. The end of the day, we're not looking for charity. We're not looking for handout. We believe this is social responsibility. It's not a red issue. It's not a blue issue. It's not a large state issue or a small state issue. It's an American issue. It's incumbent upon the federal government to do more uh, and to do better at this moment. And not pointing fingers when I say that. Uh, I am just saying we have a shared responsibility to the American people, 40 million that live in the state of California. Uh, that's interesting. So, you know, he's doing what uh, you're going to hear a lot of politicians doing, what they always do. They're create a hostage situation with populations that you're otherwise sympathetic to, supportive of. You either give me the money or they get it. Uh, even as the first round of $150 billion worth of state and local funding in the CARES Act, we know states and localities were allowed to use the funds they received to pay frontline police, firefighters, teachers, etc. And then uh, Newsom had uh, this to say about um, the business climate in California, part of the uh, economic problem, even that preceded uh, COVID-19, certainly when it comes to budget and unfunded liabilities, which number about $1.5 trillion in California state and local unfunded pension and health care liabilities. Newsom uh, talking about his friend Elon Musk. Uh, we may not be the cheapest place to do business, but we're the best place to do business. And it shouldn't surprise you or anyone watching uh, that that innovation and research and development and that entrepreneurial spirit is still alive and well, despite this pandemic here in the state of California. Uh, I've known Elon for decades. I have great respect and admiration for his innovative spirit. And this state has been his partner in helping him grow his business. There's sort of a problem there to went uh, by without remark, but it deserves remark. Maybe one of the uh, silver linings come out of this is uh, states and cities rethinking all the things that they've allowed government to get involved in. That it really shows no competency, capacity, creativity, fiduciary responsibility to the taxpayers per the involvement. Get out of businesses you have no business being in. Do what you did with uh, your high-speed rail project, Governor Newsom, San Francisco to Sacramento, Connecting San Francisco and Sacramento with L.A. that was projected to cost about $100 billion. California voters approving a $10 billion bond issue in 2008 to build the line. The federal government, meaning all of us, kicked in another $3.5 billion. Construction began in 2015, and it was ditched last year because of the lack of feasibility, both in terms of uh, projected time to completion and associated costs. 
maybe this is a moment of self-reflection for the way that uh, big cities and big states have been governed for so many generations. And it's a time to right size those state governments and city governments. And maybe if there was a little give on that side of it against the backdrop of 36 million people filing first time unemployment over the last eight weeks in the productive sector, maybe if there was that sort of rethinking on the public sector, you could get more popular support. But as long as there isn't, you shouldn't. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, I'm going to repeat uh, some of these data points that I mentioned at the outset of the program. The consequences of the lockdowns thus far, some of them, 250-plus hospitals have furloughed workers. One-fourth of rural hospitals in the nation are at risk of closing. Nearly two dozen have closed in the last two months. 36 million first-time unemployment filers in the last two months. Forty percent of job loss in the U.S. is among those earning less than $40,000 a year. Of the 650,000 U.S. cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, an estimated half are missing their treatments. Transplants from living donors are down 85 percent. Emergency stroke evaluations down 40 percent. Pediatric vaccinations for measles down 60 percent. A study from um, Wellbeing Trust projects 75,000 additional, quote unquote, deaths of despair above the norm. Deaths of despair, suicide, substance abuse. The U.N. World Food Program predicts that by year's end, the number of people in the world facing acute hunger will double to 265 million. Combine this with a reversal of progress on child mortality, and we could be looking at the loss of more than 20 million young lives over the next decade. This says nothing about the government takings of private property or infringements upon individual liberties. By the way, this is called from the work of Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, uh, Jeffrey Tucker at the American Institute for Economic Research, Dr. Scott Atlas, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, who will join us momentarily. And against the backdrop of these consequences, this is what you get at a Senate committee hearing on another a phase four disaster relief slash stimulus bill. This from Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown questioning Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. And remember, Sherrod Brown represents a state that is 90 percent open in terms of the private sector. So how many how many workers should give their lives to increase our GDP by half a percent? That you're, that you're pushing people back into the workplace. You're, there's been no national program to provide worker safety. The president says reopen slaughterhouses, nothing about slowing the line down, nothing about getting protective equipment. Is, is, is How many workers should give their lives to increase the GDP or the Dow Jones by 1,000 points? You know workers should give their lives to do that, Mr. Senator, and I think your characterization is unfair. Uh, I think that's an understatement. As we talked about with Bradley Thomas yesterday, Perhaps the question back to Sherrod Brown is, how many lives are you willing to give up to save one coronavirus-19 infected person? For more on the topic of reopening and um, intelligent discussion, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Scott Atlas. He's the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and as I mentioned, the former Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. Dr. Atlas, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Very happy to be here. Uh, with respect to um, 
the balance. Uh, you write about this in a recent piece for the Hill.com, the need to end our shutdown. And uh, I'm sure you wouldn't wither under questioning from Senator Brown, but the case to end our shutdown now. And again, uh, I take from your piece a phased in reopening as virtually every state is doing. Well, I think that there's two sides to this that you partially outlined. One is the policy of lockdown itself is killing people. And we went through some of the medical harms, and and many of those are are things that I've written about. I won't repeat them, but the policy itself is harmful. It's killing people more than those that are dying from the virus. But the other side that extending a lockdown is literally counter to all the scientific evidence and simple common sense for the following reasons, if I may. Number one, the point of the lockdown was flattening the curve from hospitalizations per day, and that's been done everywhere, as you outlined. So that was the main point, the only point of the lockdown. It had nothing to do with stopping all COVID-19 infections, and in fact, that would be literally irrational and impossible since we have millions of people with a viral infection, irrational because almost 99% of people that have the infection have either no symptoms at all or have a mild disease that doesn't require serious medical care. The other point that's counter to science, people who want to extend this, is that we know the fatality rate is far lower than what was originally used to necessitate the lockdown, maybe a tenth, but Even worse than that, of their ignoring the data, is that the fatality rate is extremely low. In fact, if you look at the data without just summarizing a bottom line, actually look at it like a critical thinker, those who are under 60 have a fatality rate, infection fatality rate, that is less than or equal to seasonal flu. It is just factually incorrect to think otherwise. And that's data from France, Spain, the Netherlands, and all over. The other point that people have failed to do, that actually the policymakers have failed to understand, partly because they have no medical perspective on things and partly because they are simply afraid themselves because they're just human beings, sort of not sophisticated in terms of looking at illness, is that the risk to children is extremely low. In fact, virtually zero for deaths from the data and nearly zero for a serious disease. I mean, we know this from all of the numbers on hospitalizations. If you look at the CDC tables themselves, of the first 56,000 deaths in the United States, 12 were in children. Now, that's tragic for those families. I have children myself. and that's, No one's understanding that, but that's 0.02%. That means 99.98% of deaths were not in children. Moreover, The number of deaths the CDC says come from seasonal flu in children. They just estimated this, their most recent estimate is 600 in the United States. We're talking about seasonal flu. Okay, so when you look at the numbers from the most recent CDC statement on May 15th, COVID hospitalization rates are much lower, quote unquote, than for flu in children. When you look at the paper from JAMA Pediatrics published on May 11th, this is a few days ago, They specifically went through 46 pediatric hospitals in North America, and their conclusions are, A, the overall burden of the infection in children is low compared to seasonal flu. The severity of illness in children is far lower than that documented in adults, and their bottom line is that the risk of a critical illness from COVID-19 in children is far less 
they use the words far less than seasonal flu. And so there is simply no rationale for keeping kids out of schools. Zero. There's zero rationale for making them wear masks. There's zero rationale for interpersonal spacing of children in schools. Well, that, so this is a, an important point because this is part of the discussions happening right now with people uh, having an eye toward the fall and whether or not schools are going to reopen. What you have now, even a thoughtful policy analysts and thinkers, I talked to Jim Capretta from the American Enterprise Institute earlier in the show. He's like, I, I want to see a little bit more research on children before I, I would say green light going back to school in the fall. And I, I think this is in part because of that uh, rash of Kawasaki syndrome-like illnesses in children. And even though it's a small cohort, I mean, it just shows you what small cohort amplified by the media. We could have concerns here. So let's just stop everything because we could have a worst case scenario where the, what the virus has mutated to some extent, or certain children with certain immune responses are, are in danger. And that could be a larger population than we understand. I mean, how, how do you react as you're watching that discussion play out? I don't know whether to laugh or cry at those kinds of statements, and, and I'm being dead serious. These people don't know what they're talking about. I hate to talk that way, but it, you know it's impossible to listen to this stuff. Uh, here's the facts. Kawasaki disease is an extremely rare disorder that occurs every year in the United States in two to 4,000 children. Okay, It's extremely rare, that disease. And by the way, it's treatable. Nobody's talking about that. But forget about that point. The other point is, this complication that resembles Kawasaki disease is far, far rarer than the already extremely rare Kawasaki disease, okay? I mean, this is insanity to talk about this. In New York City, there are 15,700 and some deaths the last I looked two days ago at their, their own website. Eight million people under 18, and only one was in a child without a significant underlying disease. That means 0.006%, not 6%, not 0.6, not 0.006% in one child. This is insane what's being said about Kawasaki disease. It is completely irrational. And simply, it's a manifestation of the fear that any normal person even has ever heard of the word Kawasaki disease. This is just completely <laughs> a world okay. that... I don't want to laugh, you know, we, but we I are mean, listening yeah. to. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm sorry, but we are listening to people talk out of their blank about stuff they know nothing about. This is the era where you do a Google search and you think you know what you're talking about, about something that's very complicated. Every doctor in the world understands that there are serious complications from every infection known to man that are extremely rare. That has nothing to do with outweighing the overwhelming data on this. Let's hold it right there. I want to I want to pick up this discussion uh, right on the other side of the break and, and also uh, a little bit more of a deeper dive on the uh, distribution of death by age cohort, because this is an important facet of the discussion as well. More with Dr. Scott Atlas, former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
We're back with Dr. Scott Atlas. He is the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the former Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. And I had him whipped into a frenzy before the break uh, talking about uh, Kawasaki disease and uh, whether or not the, uh, the, the reports of some children having Kawasaki disease-like symptoms to COVID-19 infection should prevent a return to school in the fall. And you were also discussing, uh, Dr. Atlas, the distribution of death. And this is a ghoulish business, but I mean, this is what's informing public policy choices. So we we have to discuss it. And the way that it's being characterized by people saying, well, more deaths over the age of 80, uh, like in Illinois, three times as many deaths over the age of 80 as under 60. Well, you don't care about people over 80. No, it's it's not to say older people don't matter, that they shouldn't be protected, that they're not part of the policy calculation. It's just for the purposes of making risk assessments so we can make sensible public policy, right? Well, I mean, here's the point about that whole identification of who's at risk. That's the point of protecting people. There's no rationale for locking down everyone in society who's healthy, and by the way, not locking down and protecting the only group that's vulnerable to die, and that particular group is in the nursing homes. We have New York State locked down on March 20th. That's weeks after this started, and then only seven weeks later, after the total lockdown, do they issue an order saying that people have to be very strictly monitored and with testing to go into the nursing homes. If you look at the country, many states have 50, 60, 80% of their deaths in nursing homes. Why is there a rule to restrict people from going outside of their homes to a park, yet we're putting infected people into nursing homes? We're literally letting healthy people go into nursing homes that are healthy nursing home patients that have infected nursing home patients in the same floor. And by the way, this is not just going on in the United States. This is going on all over the world. 50% plus of all deaths in the world are in nursing homes. You look even places that are rational, like Switzerland and Sweden, with the way they're dealing with their reopenings. Data yesterday, 53% of Switzerland's deaths are in nursing homes. I mean, this is an incredibly egregious failure of public policy by people who really don't know what they're doing, but they're in charge. And, and in reaction to that, uh, that you get statements like uh, from former CDC head, Dr. Peter Frieden, there's no such thing as being an alarmist. You get uh, Melinda Gates saying COVID-19 anywhere is COVID-19 everywhere. Okay, these platitudes are completely meaningless. I mean, with all due respect, money does not uh, mean knowledge. I can see the point. I'm just, you know, you're talking about the people in charge or the people whose opinions are being amplified. This seems to me part of the problem. And and so it runs interference into sort of any sensible conversation. I I sense that's your frustration. Well, I mean, I'm frustrated because I'm worried the country is literally committing national suicide here. Mm. We are letting fear change public policy and create fear. And here's the problem here. Now we're in a situation to reopen where we have a public that has been confused and, of course, necessarily so because they're not medically fluent people, and that's okay, but the fear now is the problem. Switzerland reopened their restaurants and almost no one came. They didn't come because of the fear. So now there's going to have to be really non-science-based policies to get people to feel comfortable to come out. I'll give you an example of that. There's going to be a policy where airlines and airports are going to monitor body temperature. The science behind that is literally ludicrous. I mean, there is no science behind that, and I can go through why in some other time. Yet, 
it may make sense if that's what it's going to take to get people to feel like they can go on an airplane. So, I mean, people are afraid. I'm seeing people in Palo Alto, California, where I live, wearing masks, driving in their cars alone, running on a track outside, wearing a mask. This makes zero sense, but I'm not making fun of them. This is an indication of the fear from a grossly erroneous public policy message. And on this topic, I wanted to get you to weigh in on antibody tests because Manoush Boutte, who's a associate professor, chief of pediatric allergy, immunology, and rheumatology at uh, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, and Andrew Bogan, who's a molecular biologist, uh, have a piece in the journal talking about uh, the political assault on antibody tests that the suggestion, and I, you've heard this, you hear this from politicians too, the antibody tests, uh, they're not particularly accurate. Uh, they're not as widely available as they need. There's it's sort of a, a dismissive attitude about the importance of the antibody tests or what they can tell us. And the uh, authors of this piece I referenced, right, given the reliability and performance of these tests, it appears to be politics, not science, that's behind the claim that the presence of specific antibodies in those who've recovered from COVID-19 doesn't indicate protective immunity. This is baffling. If it's true, how does anyone recover from a severe infection ever? The point is downplaying the test and then downplaying or saying we don't know yet whether people who are infected develop antibodies to the virus. My read of what that is is they're downplaying the skepticism that antibodies are protective. They're baffled, rightfully so, if I'm interpreting what you just said correctly, yeah. they're baffled about the denial of decades of basic known science. Yes. And I've said this from the beginning, the known science. And actually, Dr. Fauci himself in his testimony said the following. I'm highly optimistic about vaccines because this is a disease where the infection causes antibodies to be generated and those people get better. Why do you think people get better from uh, the infection? This is, doesn't, shouldn't even need to be uh, talked about, honestly, but it does because of the frenzy here. When people get infected, we generate antibodies. Antibodies are protective, and those antibodies are the underlying excitement about why transfusing antibodies from healed people into those who might get sick is protective. That's one sense of excitement here about a drug. And secondly, if you don't believe antibodies are protective, then you would be literally irrational to say that vaccines are necessary because vaccines are injected into people so that they generate antibodies. Antibodies are the means of protection. If you don't believe antibodies are protective, why would you want a vaccine? Mm. It's literally, we're living in a Kafka novel, for those of your audience who yes. have ever read the book, The Trial. Last question before we let you go. Um, spoke with a microbiologist, Alex Berezow, earlier in the show. He's also a columnist for USA Today. And just asked him the question, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, whether the politician want to admit it or not, with the reopening, are we not effectively de facto pursuing the Swedish model. And he basically said, yeah, I don't see how you describe it any other way. What's your opinion on that? Here's the story. We know when we reopen or even relax any of these total we will get more cases. That's okay. We expect that. We know that. So number one, the next headline that says, wow, we reopen, we're going to get more cases. That's no problem. Of course we are. The models are built that way, first of all. But we don't care if there's more cases as long as we protect the people who are going to get sick and die. We don't need to protect anybody who's in a low-risk group. We don't need to stop the infection. It's irrational. There's no logic to that. We don't sit there and lock down from November to March every single year because we know that 50,000 people are going to die from the flu, even with a vaccine, even with antiviral drugs. 
So it's not that we're pursuing a strategy of herd isolation. We know that this disease is no, this infection is nowhere near as fatal. And we can target the people who are vulnerable so that we can protect them. If we would have done that from the beginning, as many of us advocated, half of these nursing home patients wouldn't, wouldn't have died. He is Dr. Scott Atlas, the David and Joan Tradle Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the former Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. Dr. Atlas, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Sure, thanks. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The uh, NFL approved new measures on Tuesday aimed at approving diversity in coach and front office hiring. Uh, the so-called uh, Rooney Rule. These are apparently amendments to it. But Stop short of a proposal that would have actually compensated teams in terms of draft picks by hiring minorities for uh, GM or head coaching spots, as well as compensation in the form of draft picks for hiring minority candidates for positions such as quarterbacks coaches. That's tabled for now. Proposal that would have improved teams third round draft picks by six or 10 spots if they hired a minority candidate for a vacant GM or coach. A head coaching job, for example. Remarkable. Remarkable sort of backdoor reparations, if you will. I don't know how else to describe it. And uh, this uh, certainly was um, explained in part by a piece at the Claremont Review of Books by David Azerod, who's an assistant professor at Hillsdale College. Talking about what social justice's endgame is. This is certainly an expression of it, the NFL example not limited to college campuses. We're all on a college campus now, as Andrew Sullivan famously exclaimed just, uh, frankly, a few months ago. Um, what is social justice's end game? I think this is a pretty good summation from the Hillsdale professor. Uh, for all their talk of statistical parity, identitarians can never have too many women, people of color, and LGBTQ people in the, de- the desirable realms of life. Nor can there ever be too many men, whites, or straights in the non-desirable realms of life. The principle of statistical parity is, in reality, applied selectively as a cudgel against so-called oppressor groups. The real goal of identity politics thus proves to be not proportional representation, but greater diversity, i.e. fewer whites, fewer men, fewer heterosexuals. For that is all that diversity means, fewer members of the bad groups. How few? We are never told. But fewer than we currently have is always an imperative. Beyond that, the term diversity is essentially meaningless. It tells us nothing about the actual composition of a population or a group. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Michael Rechtenwald, who is a retired NYU professor, a Marxist mugged by reality and then mugged professionally. He's the author of Springtime for Snowflake, Social Justice and its Postmodern Parentage. Uh, uh, Google Archipelago, the digital gulag and the simulation of freedom and the recently released Beyond Woke. Professor Rechtenwald, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. How are you? Good. Um, So um, the uh, the Rooney rule in the NFL is an expression of what uh, Professor Azarad is from Hillsdale College is referencing. And 
and frankly, some of your previous writings and I suppose uh, your current writings as well. Yes, I mean, this is just affirmative action and, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion, which the way I would put it is this. It is not about equal representation of different groups, but as uh, the Hillfield professor said, it's about a particular inclusion of only a certain type. And moreover, it's an inversion of the hierarchy, of, of the hierarchy that they see in place otherwise. So what they're trying to do is put everybody that's on the bottom on the top and vice versa. Uh, it's an inverse hierarchy. They're, they're not after egalitarianism or equality. They're after... Uh, they're after their own domination of the hierarchy. That's what this, this is about. Well, and he, he raises a question, too, that I think would be fun to put to the Nicole Hannah-Joneses of the world, Pul- uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, of course. Um, and that is, uh, so uh, slavery is the original sin, wired into our DNA. Uh, white cisgendered males are the great oppressor. So what is to be done with yeah. this bad people? What, what What are we to do with these bad people? It's not just enough to to try to get more um, uh, of the oppressed in positions of authority, something has to be done with the, those offenders and what is to be done with them. Yeah. It's a constant guilt trip is what they're trying to impose guilt plus self-flagellation remorse as, as if we have something to, to atone for uh, even though, you know, none of us at this in this generation had anything to do with slavery. Uh, and my family certainly had nothing to do with it either. Uh, so, I mean, it's about a constant scourge upon those who are deemed to be privileged and an attempt to constantly invoke uh, the the uh, subordinated claims of grievance in order to weaponize their identities and use those weaponized identities as cudgels to beat up on those who supposedly have privilege. I want to pick up there and just develop this a little bit more, particularly how they use statistics to um, prosecute their case. Uh, More with uh, retired NYU professor Michael Rechtenwald, uh, author of Springtime for Snowflakes, Google, I always want to say Gulag, but that's the point, Google Archipelago, as well as the recently released Beyond Woke. Uh, More with uh, Michael Rechtenwald. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with retired NYU professor Michael Rechtenwald, author of Springtime for Snowflakes, Google, Google Archipelago, and the recently released Beyond Woke. And we were talking about. Um, the end game for the social justice warriors, for the cultural Marxists. And uh, they, th- there's a lot of uh, love over hate and, uh, you know, statistical parody, parody, mm-hmm. equality. That's all we want. We want love and yeah. we want parody. And what do they really mean right. when they say that? Well, they don't mean parity at all, because, as I said, they're, they're looking for control and they want to have the power. And that means that they want to be on top. And that's exactly what's happening. And they wanted to be gifted to them as well, or the gifted to certain uh, phenotypical groups. That has nothing to do with what's inside anyone's head 
or what what they think, what they know, anything. It's a strictly based on phenotypes. So it's really unbelievably racialist at base when in fact they're supposed to be overlooking such things and we're supposed to see what people are really made of as individuals. Instead, it's shuffling them in as groups, treating everybody as a member of a group and not as a person, not an individual person. And this really lends itself to a lot of, uh, first of all, a lot of incredulity or disbelief that any minorities are are worthy of their positions because so many get handed positions for no reason other than their phenotype, so their appearance. So it's really quite a problem for both those supposed subordinated people and for everybody else, because it's not doing anyone any favors. Well, and the, the other thing, it's all a bit muddled, isn't it? I mean, Ibrahim Kendi, who is this uh, celebrated uh, history professor at American University, his, uh, part of his argument is that race is entirely a social construct. So on the one hand, yeah. on the, so so I mean, if it's entirely a social contrast, there's nothing a sort of intrinsic uh, about uh, your racial profile. Then how is that the basis on which uh, privileges and responsibilities are being assigned? And that's the problem. Again, it's just all based on not diversity of of thought or interesting uh, interesting thought or you know worthiness intellectually or otherwise even in sports, you know, for example, just in terms of coaching, just being a good coach. So regardless of what your race is, or even even your gender, really, why not? So it's not about equal opportunity. It's about a reverse equal outcome. They want a reverse equal outcome that benefits only their groups. That's it. And I and I suppose, you know, there's some, uh, you know, maybe optimism that uh, we have more pressing matters to deal with these days than uh, the pronouns by which you want to be referenced. Um, But it seems to me that um, this this is not going to go away, this this toxic ideology, and it will return as we return to something approach uh, approximating our, our normal lives. Well, I mean, for many in this social justice, now we're calling the social justice warrior crowd. Now we're calling them the social distance warriors. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, uh, among many of these social distance warriors, uh, they are still up to it. And everything, they're interpreting everything about this virus in terms of these categories, these racial, gender, and other categories. They just can't let it go. So they're taking every opportunity to exploit these uh, issues, like to exploit this false narrative and this false solution that they propose really it's a very it's a very much of a power grab it has nothing to do with equality it doesn't benefit even those it claims to help it actually hurts them and uh grievance studies, I'm, I'm sorry yeah, grievance studies turns everybody into grievances grievance uh people with rights and and then you know bias uh attempts attempts at overturning bias or or, or likewise backfire every single time it turns into a nightmare and less people of color and less women are hired on work in workplaces because of these efforts because it turns into antagonism between between these groups which hadn't existed previously and in terms of the 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 ongoing prosecution of their worldview and the sort of um, uh, constriction uh, when it comes to freedom of thought speech association to to the extent that they are able uh, you wrote a book about big tech, Google Archipelago, and we see now yeah. new 
uh, categories of of uh, fact checking and flagging by Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook when it comes to materials right. that relate to COVID-19. Yeah, you're not allowed to have an opinion that differs with the dominant narrative. And if you do, they'll just block it from appearing. So this is disappearing dissident opinions, just like they did in the Soviet Union, and and oftentimes kicking them out of the uh, off the forums. So this is like a disappearance into a gulag, effectively a digital gulag. So yes, uh, it's actually bearing out. This virus is bearing out in ways that I didn't expect. Uh, a lot of the themes and theses of that book. That is that uh, the the other thing is that they're creating a sort of monopolies and driving every small business out of the, out of out of existence. I mean, this is the kind of what I call corporate socialism that's quite devastating to uh, society. It'll leave in a kind of class of socialism on the bottom with big monopolies on top and nothing in between. And that's very that's very very troubling. In terms of the uh, you know the accepted orthodoxy and trying to enforce unanimity of opinion, is that the prism? Yeah. Is that the prism through which you viewed the recent CNN town hall on COVID nineteen that include a former HHS secretary, a medical doctor, and Greta Thunberg? Yeah, it's just it's it's so it's so absurd that it it really doesn't even. I mean, it's it doesn't even make sense. I can't even get my head around why they would have. I don't know how old she is, but whatever. She, she's certainly not an epidemiologist or a virologist or uh, anything. So yeah, it's just stunning. But I guess that's not this far for the course. Is that um, if you, it's not really about what you know; it's what you spew. Whether you spew the right kind of verbiage, and that's what they're looking for. Yeah. He is Michael Rechtenwald. He's a retired NYU professor, author of Springtime for Snowflakes, Google Archipelago, and the recently released Beyond Woke pick that up now we'll pick them all up but to beyond woke uh amazon and all the other places you normally pick up books these days particularly in, when you're sheltered in place michael rechtenwald thanks so much for joining us appreciate it thanks thanks for The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Prof is single. Yes, uh, this edition brings us to Brevard County, Florida, Melbourne, Florida. A 32-year-old woman named Audra Adams called 911 a total of five times from Monkey Bar and Grill, uh, which uh, is now reopened. Maybe they wish they didn't, or they at least they wish they didn't admit Audra Adams. She uh, told the officers that um, that they, they were not maintaining social distancing guidelines at the bar. But uh, if you uh, go to the tape, the 911 call... Uh, suggest there were there were other problems uh, that had nothing to do with social distancing. And to the extent there were social distancing issues, the problem was Audra Adams. 
Huh. I'm in monkey bar and I'm being told I'm trespassed because somebody observed me not obeying the law that mm. they're not agreeing to under OSHA and under every other explicable. <laughs> what are you even talking about? OSHA. Yeah. They're not letting you in because you're drunk. Mm. No, I've already been there and they removed me with people that I know inside. Well, they're allowed to deny service to whoever they would like. So if you're drunk and they think you've had too much to drink. So listen to me right now. So listen to me right the f*** now. Can I tell you that I'm going inside that business? So what am I doing right now? Are you going to fucking tell me? Don't curse. It's not nice. Okay. So I was married to deputy for years. And if somebody tells you that she was kicked out and denied access to an establishment, that people are being admitted to underage, under monkey bar, and I'm telling you that I'm sitting here, why witness to all this? You're I mean, I, you're I doubt they're letting people in underage. We're not going to curse. That's not nice, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel sorry for the deputy she was apparently formally married to, and I understand why it's formally. Uh, in fact, uh, Miss Adams kept trying to randomly kiss strangers at the monkey bar and grill, and that's why, um, in addition to her inebriated state, she was asked to leave. She was calling 911 even after officers showed up at the scene and were actually speaking to her while she was on the phone with 911 operator. So that's uh, another installment in terms of why Dan Proft is single. Also, why Dan Proft is not a 911 dispatcher. Uh, but what Dan Proft is, is a fan of Dennis Prager and the No Safe Spaces documentary that he and his colleague, Adam Carolla, put together. It uh, documents how free speech is under assault on college campuses, social media platforms, as well as in Hollywood. We were just discussing this with uh, former NYU professor Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, Now you can watch No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. And for a limited time only, if you use the discount code SAFE25, Dan Prof listeners will get 25% off the stream of No Safe Spaces, which you find at nosafespaces.com. And you can watch that as many times as you want until May 31st. Again, No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Save 25 is the discount code for 25% off. Thank you for joining me on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate you tuning in and hope you do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.